0: Illinois institutes an AR 15 ban, plus a conversation with the International Center for Law and Economics, R.J. Lehman, on the new gun insurance mandates now taking effect. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast.
1: Oh, the devil's got no-
0: All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast, our first one in 2023. Here, I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of thereload.com, where you can head over and check out our free newsletter that goes out every Friday. It gives you the latest news on guns throughout the country. You can also help support our reporting by buying a membership. We are a member supported publication that is how we make our money. You can check out Our monthly and yearly options over at TheReload.com. This week, we are talking about a new trend in gun laws, uh, state level, state and city level, I guess in this case, a brand new idea, essentially, uh, or at least in practice, and in legislation. This is sort of something you hear a lot about, I think, in general discussions about guns, uh, on the internet or, you know, with your friends or something, uh, and that is gun liability insurance requirements. We have one now in San Jose, California, and New Jersey just passed one for uh, in connection with their broom response gun carry restriction law. So this week we have uh, an insurance expert, uh, R.J. Lehman from the uh, Center for Law and Economics. How are you doing, R.J.? Welcome to the show. Can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself?
2: sure thanks for having me uh yeah i guess you can call me an insurance expert i had a, a background uh I used to work for the am best company which is the main rating agency that rates insurers for financial solvency i was a manager of their dc bureau going back to the before the financial crisis and through the financial crisis uh i have a as an insurance uh agent and broker on the side in in new jersey actually uh, fittingly for for this topic and uh I, I then co-founded the R Street Institute in 2012 and uh, worked there for about a decade and uh, ran their insurance public policy uh, 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 program. And gun gun liability insurance is a topic I've been seeing come up for about a decade. Um, first serious efforts right after Sandy Hook, um, you saw bills introduced in Connecticut and New York. Um, but it had not really gone anywhere because there are some serious problems with trying to create this product that people imagine. Right. Uh, they imagine uh, in, in, what they they hope it will do is that all gun owners would be required to be insured. Insurers would uh, use their data expertise to uh, to underwrite those people who are safe and who won't you know, cause ex- accidents or injuries or, or damaged property. Um, they'll charge more to the riskier uh, gun owners and less to the less risky gun owners um, and encourage a, a safer environment for for firearms generally. I'd say some people also hope that they will deny people uh, insurance and therefore deny them the ability to get firearms uh, altogether. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> It requiring people to purchase insurance that does not exist is sort of facially uh, a violation of the Second Amendment. And by and large, what they the kinds of products that they imagine do not exist and probably cannot exist.
0: Yeah. So let's let's get into this. You wrote a piece uh, on this whole topic and on these new laws that have now gone into effect. You know, th- These aren't theoretical anymore. They mm-hmm. haven't been blocked yet by okay. any courts. They are yeah. in effect in San Jose and uh, New Jersey. Uh, yeah. well, although I believe the New Jersey one uh, is that in effect right now, they, or is it? Still their entire
2: bill maybe stayed, if I'm remembering correctly, because that it was part of a broader bill that did other. Well, things. The, some of the restrictions
0: sure. have been yeah. st- have been blocked by yeah, yeah. Uh, a temporary restraining order from a judge. But those were the sensitive okay. places restrictions on right. where you can carry a gun. The yeah. insurance requirement was not part of that lawsuit. Uh, there's gotcha. other lawsuits going through now. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I was, do you know if they, uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure if the, the what the effective date of that insurance requirement was. Is it I think we got, right? yeah,
2: January 1st. Okay. So it would, it would have been in effect
0: as of okay. you know, two weeks ago. Yep. So yeah, you have to buy some sort of um, carry insurance now. Uh, let's get into some of these details because there's Mm -hmm. going to be a lot of confusion around a lot of these terms because both from gun owners and from people who aren't gun owners, because, you know, for instance, uh, you know, the the New Jersey one, people in the gun world know of a product that is referred to as concealed carry insurance. uh, But it's not, that's not what's being required by New Jersey. Correct? Correct.
2: Yes. So in to, to start, we should say, what is actually being required by New Jersey is something of an open question because the law is the statutory text is really sloppy um, and does not define its terms very clearly at all. Um, so the first question is whether or not this is limited to the requirements of purchase insurance is limited to people with concealed carry permits. The text doesn't say that um, the the bill uh, was passed in response to the Bruin decision, and the Bruin decision um, made clear that New Jersey's existing concealed carry permit re- uh, uh, regime couldn't last because it was very much like New York, which was explicitly struck down. Um, so, they, re- they the first part of the bill does repeal the existing uh, uh, demonstrated need test, um, and the insurance requirement doesn't say specifically that it re- applies to. Permit holders. It applies to any damage uh, or injury that results from the public carrying of a weapon, of a firearm. Um, Okay. So, does that mean even if if all you're doing is transporting from you know a gun shop to your home, is that carrying uh, in that in that context? If, If something happened in that period would you still need to be insured that's open to question also because it says for any injury um or or accident any damage whatsoever um that would seem to say that you would need to be insured for intentional acts um purposeful use of firearms um to either injure a person kill a person or or damage property and that is not covered by any insurance properties um they're well, ha- I mean, yeah,
0: so this is, they're trying to require insurance against you murdering someone,
2: effectively. Basically, yeah. I mean, what's ironic about um, about these requirements is that just a few years ago, we actually saw the exact opposite, sometimes from the same people who, who've been proposing these requirements, which was when the NRA worked with... Um, broker called Lockton and uh, and various underwriters, but most of them were, were uh, Chubb uh, underwriters, to offer its carry guard program. Carry guard, among the things that carry guard covered were defense costs. If you um, say you believed you, you, you used your weapon and you were carrying it lawfully and you used it in a lawful uh, self-defense context, um, you may right. still face either civil or criminal prosecution that the insurance would respond, uh that would cover your, your defense costs. Now right. And this is that's
0: are, what most people yeah. in the that's Correct. what most people in the gun world would call concealed carry insurance. Although yeah, uh, a lot of these different offerings aren't really insurance in the sense yeah, that some of them are you know, membership based insurance policy. Yeah, yeah. Some of yeah, them are a lot it, of them it, are like yeah. sort of like co ops for, for legal representation or, or and they, like and what,
2: retainer yeah, retainers that is in part response to what happened in New York State, um, where the New York State Financial right. Services Supervisor sued the NRA, also got consent decrees from the broker and the underwriters saying that this insurance was illegal. Um, it covered right. criminal acts. And by covering criminal acts, it was against public purposes and could not be offered in the state of New York. The state of Washington had similar lawsuits. And New Jersey, uh, New Jersey also targeted the same program. It didn't technically target on those grounds. There were some other more technical grounds about the, pro- the insurance processes that the broker underwent. There were certain, like, it's more boring than your audience cares about, but they violated <laughs> other insurance laws. And it seems clear that they did violate sure. those insurance laws. But what was the goal of this was to take down the NRA, right? It wasn't really... Uh, whether or not this was a violation of insurance law or not, uh, was to get a political sure, but, win the
0: NRA. But the point is that they, these, uh, insofar as a policy has ever existed to cover yep. you while carrying a firearm in public, yep. uh, is actually these jurisdictions, New Jersey, New York, yeah. uh, and elsewhere, that outlawed them effectively or went uh, you know, or less, got them yeah. removed from their states. And now, and now it seems required. like they're <laughs> trying to require... Even, But even more so, you know, like yeah. like yeah, Carry Guard the and, and the others, yeah. if you lose yeah. those cases, they don't they don't pay for Correct. the damages.
2: Correct. Um, Correct. You yeah. know, that, so, that was just to of, pay
0: for your legal representation.
2: A lot of what has happened since the uh, the Carry Guard lawsuits is, as you say, there there are more of these co- cooperative groups that have come together, firearms owners who um, they're offering a product that they don't believe to be insurance. Some insurance regulators do believe it's insurance, and so you'll have those disputes, um, and so that they are not regulated by the same rules, and so, therefore, to keep the insurance regulators away from what they're trying to offer. Um, but, yeah, there's great irony there that you would require something that you had just wanted to ban, um, or maybe it's not an irony. Maybe that's the purpose, <laughs> is that we are going to require you to some- get something that you cannot possibly get.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it is a very odd Mm-hmm. Sort of turnabout from lawmakers in New Jersey, but uh, but uh, practically speaking, yeah. there's no policy that covers what they're trying to require. Correct?
2: That's right. I mean, basically, in a when people are referring to uh, liability insurance for firearms, basically you're going to, in most cases, get that either through your homeowner's policy if you are a homeowner. Or renters' policy, and as mentioned, there are some standalone policies just for firearms liability, but um, they're pretty rare uh, at this point, and especially. since- What do they usually cover? So they would cover accidents um, that, and, and specifically accidents to third parties. So um, if you you're you're a firearm owner, you have a homeowners policy, you're the insured, you're the first party. Um, your family is also considered part of the first party. They're covered by the same policy you are. So if uh, if a you have a contract worker come into your house, maybe they're you know they're in your bedroom, they're installing a new closet, weapon falls off of a shelf and it wasn't properly secured and there's a discharge and that and that worker is injured that's a that's a legitimate claim on a homeowner's insurance policy it can also cover you for things that happen outside the home um you would imagine most of those cases would be like hunting accidents like our former vice president right (laughs) like those yeah the that kind of thing where you you obviously didn't intend to injure another person but you 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 know happened to, to have encountered a, an accident that might be covered also by Dick Cheney's homeowner's insurance policy. Uh, if he were to be sued by <laughs> the <value>. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right. Um, and then, uh, because most of the insurance policies surrounding guns that I've ever heard yeah. of really involve um, beyond the concealed carry insurance paying for legal fees or, or paying for your legal representation, um, yeah. are mainly about, you know, if your guns get stolen, they'll, stolen. they'll reimburse sure. you for the cost.
2: Yeah, that uh, technically, it's a, that's also covered uh, on a homeowner's insurance policy. A different part of the policy, that would be the contents part of the policy, same as if you had an engagement ring stolen or a television stolen. Um, it's just property. The li- homeowner's insurance also provides liability insurance. They provide some amount, and you know, maybe is a hundred thousand is about common. Hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars of liability insurance. Um, And it would be, I mean, typically what you use it for is dog bites and slip and fall. You have a guest who gets bit by your dog, someone slips and falls on your property. Um, But it can be for other kinds of accidents as well. Um, But all of those policies will have in, you know, bold letters an exclusion that says this does not cover intentional acts. This doesn't cover purposeful acts. This doesn't cover criminal acts. And it doesn't even cover... Uh, in the last 20 years, it used to be a little bit broader. It doesn't even cover if, say, you did intend to shoot someone, but you didn't intend to kill them, or say you intended to shoot something but not a person, and you accidentally shot a person. That sort of thing that oh, yeah. would not be covered either. Hmm. So it's it it doesn't cover negligence either. Or at least that's what the, oh, yeah. the facially, right. that's what the contract says. Whether a court would find that. Um, that's a different question, you know, like that's where that's interesting we,
0: because, you know, just because I mean, accidental shootings are all basically the result of negligence sure. in some way. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Outside it, of it's, like
0: mechanical malfunctions. Right.
2: It's got to be true. It's got to be a true accident for the for the facial language of the policy to cover it. Again, you go to a court uh, and it goes before a jury. A jury may find you you know, negligence, and we may find that the insurer is acting in bad faith if it tries to deny that claim. Um, But that's not, the intent of the insurer in writing that language is that those cases would not be covered.
0: Okay. But the point here is that none of this stuff qualifies, you know, the the things that actually exist out there for gun liability insurance, none of that qualifies for what New Jersey is trying to require.
2: No, not at all. Okay. Um, And and so um,
0: let's talk a little bit about San Jose now. Because mm-hmm. there's requirements a little bit different. It's actually been through a uh, the first, sort of, yeah. you know, level of a, a lawsuit. Yeah. There was a ruling by a federal judge upholding this requirement yeah. that the city mm-hmm. has put in place. Uh, let's yeah. get into that one. What is that requiring exactly?
2: So that is much more limited in its requirement, and it does basically just cover. You must, if you are a gun owner, um, have insurance for accidental injury or damage um as i said that is typically required by a homeowner's policy or a renter's policy uh if you don't have either you theoretically would be required to get some kind of coverage either go get yourself a renter's policy or get some kind of standalone policy um it doesn't well, that's not doesn't, how that
0: started out though right yeah no
2: oh. <laughs> no not at all um it started out yeah, as, and that's as,
0: not how it was sold
2: <laughs> as a broad mandate that would apply to everybody, and would, uh, and that insurers would use their underwriting ability to to weed out bad bad gun owners and and charge more uh, to those who are riskier. Um, that's not the way it's fun-
0: right. And, it, fun- and yeah. it's coupled with a fee. It's
2: coupled, it's coupled with, with a fee, fee that's as supposed well. to go
0: to uh, to uh, like a, firearm, a uh, yeah, nonprofit like, it, to offset. Yeah.
2: The cost right. of gun violence
0: they, is supposed to be the idea.
2: Yeah, they haven't determined what that nonprofit would be, and so until they do, I think the fee is on hold. Um, also, the uh, there is no rec- unlike New Jersey, which says you must have three hundred thousand dollars of coverage. San Jose's ordinance doesn't stipulate how much coverage. So I don't know if you have a thousand dollars of coverage, is that enough? We we don't know, but that it seems on on its face that it would be. Um, all, and there are, it also includes some uh, to some carve outs so law enforcement are not required uh, to to abide by the ordinance um, also concealed they don't carry, ever have accidents yeah concealed carry permit owners owners are not required to to abide by it either but in a city of more than a million people there are only 36 concealed carry permits in the city of San Jose um, so that's a pretty small right. uh, group but what's what's funny about that is, by exempting concealed carry you've you've made clear that this is not about public carry right this is about ownership it's in fact all, theoretically people who do not right. <laughs> carry the weapon who would have to buy the coverage people who do carry the weapon theoretically have a, have an exemption
0: yeah the exemptions don't really make yeah. a lot of sense in the San Jose one but uh especially cuz the but you know of course that whole ordinance was sold as like a way of putting the costs of gun violence mm-hmm. on gun owners, yes, uh, which, uh, you know, this, one, it doesn't actually seem to accomplish mm-hmm. this, but two, yeah. you know, of course, the, it's very highly questionable whether that's constitutional. But there yeah. was, uh, to be fair to San Jose, mm-hmm. uh, a federal judge who who ruled mm-hmm. it is constitutional, that it's okay. Now, uh, they cited surety laws uh, mm-hmm. from the eighteen 1800- uh, 18th century yeah. uh, from the founding era as yeah. their guiding post for, um, you know, the historical tradition of requiring insurance yep. to own firearms. Now, yeah. um, you know, that that's sort of the standard under Bruin is you have to find for, for modern gun laws. And these are two yeah. laws that have never existed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing. There, there was never any gun insurance requirements ever in yeah. any part of the United States to this point. But there were these surety laws and the Mm -hmm. the judge in this case said that they constitute a substantially similar historical law. And therefore, it's constitutional under the Bruin test for San Jose to require this insurance policy to own a firearm. Um, Can you explain to us a little bit about what these surety laws actually did? Yeah. Um, Because I think a lot of people are curious on that point.
2: Yeah. So a surety is is technically a form of insurance. Um, The purpose of a surety is to assure that uh, a specific kind of performance will or will not uh, be uh, uh, taken by the person who goes to get the surety. So the most common surety that people are familiar with is a bail bond. Um, You you go get a bond. Uh, to pay they put the up your, your bail up front you pay them a certain amount. Um, if you uh, don't skip bail then you can then they get the money back from the court. Uh, the money you've given them is theirs. Um, and if you do skip out then they would be out the money from the court and that's why they hire you know bounty hunters to go get you. So there was something similar uh, a similar a, a system similar to that. Uh, that actually goes back to Britain in the 1300s. Um, and it involved knights who uh, were marauding in the countryside. And so if you went to your local magistrate and said, there's this knight and he's disturbing the peace and waving his sword around, um, he can he could require uh, the justice of the peace could require that the that the knight had to go get a surety that for some limited period of time, Uh, In those days, it wasn't a bond. It would be like, you know, a wealthy landowner would agree to pay that if he doesn't disturb the peace in this period of time, he's all good. But if he does, he he has to pay. The the surety is forfeit. Um, So there were similar laws in colonial America and a couple of the colonies in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, and then in about a half dozen states uh, starting the early 19th century, um, again, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania... Uh, I think Kentucky was one of them, Um, that all were triggered by someone having a complaint. So really, it's more like a red flag law, Um, like where you would say that this person is in some way a a threat to public order. Um, And that's why they would have to go get a surety. Again, it would be for a limited period of time. It's not a it's not a freestanding obligation of all gun owners and it's, it's not uh, applied across the board. It's applied to specific individuals. The judge... I should, right. I, I so that's,
0: should, I, that's the yeah. big difference yep. here, right, yeah. it, is that surety laws, uh, you know, did exist, and they are part of the historical tradition of gun regulation yep. in the United yep. States, and they're going to be a very significant part of probably a lot of Bruin analysis mm-hmm. moving forward. Yeah, yep. uh, yep. But... They were very specific laws that dealt with very specific issue mm-hmm. of yeah. somebody who is accused of being a threat yeah. to the public safety. Uh, sort of, a, I think, but this, the, you know, you're describing knights. I think people mm-hmm. maybe of a certain age, at least, might know the term highwayman. Right, uh, right. From yep. the you know Willie Nelson Johnny Cash song, a yep, sure. highwayman was basically somebody who would just rob people as they right. you know went, uh, traveled out of town. That mm-hmm. was sort of the same idea as these mm-hmm. the roving band of, of knights. Obviously, we, we today associate knights with a totally different
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, sort of aesthetic, or, or yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we we usually think of them as noble, you know, good. Yeah, yeah guys, but um, they could also be basically like gangs, essentially, yeah. that would rob people as they traveled around. Right. And so there yeah. were laws like the, and a lot of these laws are still relevant today, because they, they came up in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, but they were sort of uh, the the catalyst for laws that continued well on into the you yeah. know, 18th century, um, which is the relevant period for Bruin. And, yeah. um, uh, but they, you know, they're basically people who there's reason to think that they might do something. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: to harm others with the guns they want to carry or the weapons they want to carry. And right. so the response usually in this, of course, the, ironically, the response is, you know, today, somebody like that who'd been convicted of, uh, you know, um, robbing somebody uh, in a felony assault or something wouldn't be allowed to own guns at all for well. the rest of their life. Right. Uh, back then you'd, you had to do something like put up a surety, which yeah. is a very different restriction. But either way, um, you know, you see the spe- the specificity of what a surety law was, and what it did, yeah. compared to a blanket insurance requirement to own guns by literally everyone in the city of San Jose yeah. uh, or anyone who wants to carry a gun. Or there's even, as you explained earlier, some ambiguity about w- well, who exactly the New Jersey requirement attaches yeah. to, but. Uh, you know, there, there's – it seems like there's some fairly significant differences. Is that yeah. your you're reading?
2: That's, that's fair. And also the judge, Judge Freeman in – so she hasn't technically gotten to a, a decision in the case. She's had some preliminary orders. One was mm-hmm. – um, uh, she, she denied she, the temporary re- – Right. D- denied a temporary restraining order. Um, she has uh, the, the main group that was challenging the law. She dismissed their claim, but – with leave to amend, meaning they can now go back and amend their complaint, uh, incorporating in particular Bruin analysis, which she she got briefed on, but didn't consider that briefing the appropriate uh, forum to hear Bruin arguments. But she did hear this argument from the city about surety laws, and seemed, uh, uh, you know, inclined to say that this seems analogous. But in her analysis, she says that the reason that it's, that it's analogous is that just as surety laws were, were fit to serve a particular purpose for an individual, an individual who's a public threat, that uh, insurance companies will naturally uh, gauge the riskiness of a potential policyholder and, and charge appropriate premiums uh, fit to that policy holder, um, which is a nice theory. It's just not true. It's not, we have, we have these, uh, we have homeowners insurance policies already. That's gonna be the primary way people would satisfy the San Jose requirement. And typically an insurance company doesn't even ask if you have a gun when it gives you a homeowners policy. It's not something they've ever been interested in because firearms accidents, they know they don't cover intentional uh, damage. Firearms accidents are relatively rare. Uh, the stats I've seen are that firearms injuries, about 20% maybe, are accidental. Firearms deaths, it's 1%. Um, so it's a small right. part of a claim. And that's only that's all accidents. As I said, first-party accidents would not be covered. So if a wife and a husband have a dispute and, and there is an accidental discharge, one injures the other, not a covered policy. They're both first-party. Same thing if a child... Were to get a hold of a gun that is not properly secured, anything that happens there, he he or she is a first party, so that's not a covered uh, covered incident. Um, so her theory is uh, it doesn't look at the evidence whatsoever. It doesn't look at how insurance actually works. Um, it just assumes that that insurance companies will do this, but they don't. They don't. Right. Do right. yeah. I, I mean, I think
0: there's obviously a fatal flaw with that reasoning anyway, which is yeah. that you're trying to require insurance for someone to exercise a constitutionally protected right. right. It's very similar yeah. in my mind, at least, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, yeah. to trying to require libel insurance for yeah. anyone who wants to speak about politics in any form, yeah. whether yeah. it's pretending a protest or writing online uh, about your political opinions, You yeah. know, at least libel insurance is something that exists, is a real thing you can get, a lot of writers yeah have it uh it protects you against libel suits um but uh you know obviously if a state or city tried to require everyone who wants to engage in first amendment activities to obtain libel insurance before they do so even if the premium for that would be minuscule because libel cases are not that common um it still wouldn't be constitutional, presumably, because right. no, it places a yeah. burden on the exercise of the right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, do, you, do you think that's just a good I analogy think that, for I think
2: that's a, that's a good analogy. I mean, where we require by law liability insurance, it's it's not uh, in areas that are protected constitutional rights. We require it of drivers. We require it of doctors so that they have medical malpractice insurance. There are other instances like we require architects to get Errors and omissions liability because if an architect builds a building and it collapses—that's a, a significant threat to public safety. Um, but uh, none of those are, are constitutional rights. You don't have you don't have the right to drive or be an architect or be a doctor. Uh, you have to abide by regulations and, and licensing regimes and and all the other things that are different than constitutionally protected rights. Um, yeah. You know, Bruin Bruin is still new law, and so the standard of Bruin may be amended over time. It is a pretty broad standard to say essentially you have you know you it's it's presumptively unconstitutional. Uh, any restriction is presumptively unconstitutional, and then you have to prove the burden is on the government to prove uh, that there's something analogous. Um, we'll see how courts interpret. Something like the surety requirement. I mean, it's not crazy that a court could find that there was a requirement for insurance, and this is a requirement for insurance, and so there's an analogy there. Um, I don't think they will, but uh, but it's but it's, it's in the broad realm. She's in the realm of it's in the realm of debate, you know, and, and that's what we'll see going forward.
0: Sure. Yeah. No. Certainly, there's uh, going to be a lot of litigation that informs the Bruin standard because, you know, as you just said, there's. It was six months ago that they put down yeah. this new standard. It's a standard that relies on, uh, you know, reasoning by a- analogy, which is always going to have subjective uh, features to it. So there's not going to be a, a obvious uh, everyone's going to agree all the time um, outcome to all these cases. Uh, you know, obviously we talked about sort of the the glaring weaknesses of comparing surety laws with general. Uh, gun owners insurance requirement but um you know one thing i do wonder about is <laughs> how likely you are to see um <clears throat> it's interesting that the judge didn't just throw out uh the case on standing grounds before she got to a bruin analysis because the problem you're going to have in uh at least in San Jose given what you've described here as as how the insurance requirement actually works in practice uh, is going to be on finding somebody who's uh, that has actually had this law enforced against them right. in any in any noticeable way. Because uh, for one, you know the it's unlikely to do to change your premium in any discernible way if you already have these. Uh, policies in place. If you have a renter's insurance policy or homeowner's insurance policy, the, the liability involved is so minuscule because of the limitations of it that uh, it's not going to even register. Uh, so it's not going to make the policy more expensive because it probably already covers this this stuff anyway. But um, uh, but at the same time, they're also unlikely to go around and arrest anyone over 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 this. Unlikely, uh, yeah. Presumably, that's how they get it. That's often what you'll hear in a lot of these Bruin cases, post-Bruin cases, uh, are the states or the government will try to argue that they that they don't, you know, nobody is enforcing this stuff. No one's actually been arrested for any of this stuff. They can't prove that they would be affected by the law, Um, and so that that's a tactic that uh, they've been trying. I don't think it's been super successful. They tried it in the New Jersey sensitive places case; it didn't work there, but. It's just one more hurdle, I think, for plaintiffs to to get across. Although I get, uh, I suppose, there are there going to be people who live in San Jose now, who own guns, that don't already have these policies?
2: There's There certainly can be people who own a gun, rent their place, and don't have a renter's policy. The renters' policies, mm. if, if they're required by anybody, it's going to be a requirement of the landlord. Um, but plenty of landlords don't require them. And I, I lived in plenty of apartments, including in uh, Palo Alto, which is the same county as uh, San Jose, and didn't have a renter's insurance policy then. Um, so okay. those are the people who could theoretically be impacted by the requirement. Um, whether or not they'd go and buy a renter's policy is, I guess, the, the issue at hand. But you would have to find something. Yeah,
0: they probably have the best case for standing, yeah. I guess, because yeah. um, at the very least, they're... In violation of the requirements, yeah. even even this super watered down version that they ended up with, yeah. from where they had initially been promising people, but um, but yeah. So, I, but I guess the other thing is like, has anyone ever been? Or is this the other like it just seems very unlikely that they're ever going to arrest anyone for something like this. I wouldn't or think so. Or what have you? Yeah.
2: Um,
0: yeah. Which is the other part of it, but but at least they'll have like a claim like. Yep, I'm violating this, in theory, you know, at least technically, even if no one's arrested yeah. me for it, so other, uh, perhaps that's why the case went forward. But New Jersey is much more seems a lot yeah. clearer that a lot it's, more people would be directly right. uh, affected.
2: San Jose is requiring a form of insurance that, for all intents and purposes, everyone already has, and New Jersey is requiring a form of insurance that nobody has um, and and will never have, so or could get. Yeah. Or could yeah. Uh it just it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist if you take you know if you read the text and take it literally. Um, it is entirely mm-hmm. possible that the I, I think the lawmakers know that they drafted something that was very sloppy, and and perhaps the you know executive agencies will, in promulgating rules pursuant to that text, be clearer about what the requirements are. But the statutory text, yes, yeah.
0: But what are they going to come up with? You know, they've yeah, basically run out any of the concealed carry insurance yep. plans. So uh, you can't yeah. say you have to get you know U.S. Law Shield or or USCCA yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, so what? I don't know. I, I'd be interested to see what they try to come up with at the. Yep. I mean, it'll, it will be really funny. I think uh, very ironic if they try to bully the insurance companies into offering <laughs> something that they had just previously right. got done. Uh, New York, yes, yeah, that got done finding them over offering.
2: That, that comes that comes up too. Sometimes is uh, requiring insurance companies to offer this, which is so. The the problem with that because they 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 have the history of say Obamacare. Um, all health insurance companies offer health insurance, and at this point, essentially no health insurance companies offer any non health insurance. There's some that. You can, you know, like Aflac or something is not technically a health insurance company, but it offers some health-like products and also life-like products. Um, But you get into the property casualty industry, like homeowners insurance in no state is a super profitable line of business. Most people who write homeowners insurance do so, so that they can also write auto insurance, which is where they make money. Homeowners insurance is like an Mm -hmm. add-on. If you start requiring those kinds of companies to cover you know intentional acts from firearms they'll just say okay we we're done writing homeowners insurance in your state it's not it's just not worth it it's it, it, we barely make any money on it in many states. I live in Florida nobody makes money on homeowners insurance in Florida. In fact many companies are going out of business because because it's just the, the claims are, are too enormous and you can't charge what you need to charge. Um, so that's why the requirements would just not get anywhere. They would be really counterproductive. Um, you'd end up creating a homeowner's insurance crisis rather than actually getting other people to getting more people to buy this coverage that really can't exist.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, you know, we'll keep an eye on both of these laws and the lawsuits against them. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it does seem fairly straightforward that these are not constitutional requirements, that these laws are. Uh, completely novel, but as we've already seen once, uh, the federal judges may not agree. So uh, we'll have to watch and and see how these things turn out, how they actually try to implement the New Jersey requirements and how the the lawsuits proceed from there. So uh, we appreciate you coming on and and talking with us. Can you tell me just a little bit more, tell people where they could find you, where they could find where you're writing.
2: Yep. I'm at, uh, on Twitter, I'm at RayLehman.com. That's Lehman with two N's at the end. Uh, you can find Law International Center for Law and Economics, uh, laweconcenter.org uh, on the interwebs. Uh, and we, uh, you know, basically apply the law and economics tradition uh, to a whole sort, you know, a whole host of legal and policy and regulatory questions.
0: All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back on when there's some more developments on... On these
2: insurance requirements.
0: Thanks for having me. All right. Head over to our news update now. All right. I'm here with contributing writer, Jake Fogelman. How, how are you doing, Jake? I'm doing well. It's good to be back. We've been off yeah. the
3: podcast for a little while because it's holidays and we were sick. and, and
0: Diseases. And yes. That's right. We are, we're back now, though. We're doing better. We have a new intro song for the podcast uh, that hopefully people will enjoy. And uh, looking forward to a lot of exciting changes this year, I think. For the show and the site, uh, we're going to get into trying to, you know, expand our offerings and and do more for for you guys, the listeners and and readers of the Reload. Um, and I think it's going to be a good year for that, and uh, I'm excited about it. But this week we have uh, a pretty substantial news story out of Illinois that you wrote about. Can you tell us a little bit what, about what happened there?
3: That's right. Yeah. So to kick off 2023, we already have a uh, successful assault weapon ban attempt um, ban on semi-automatic firearms, which, you know, commonly are targeted towards things like AR-15s, AK-47s. But it covers so much more pistols, shotguns as well that have these certain cosmetic features Uh, was passed by Illinois this week and signed into law. So we now officially have a ninth state that has an assault weapon ban on the book
0: yeah and the, the second one uh following delaware last year about right. six months ago uh the second one to pass a brand new statewide ban since uh i guess the last one was 2000 uh, you wrote in your analysis piece uh, that was new york had their very first assault weapon assault pistol ban most of them were passed back in the night you know late mid to late 90s alongside the same time period as the national ban that was in effect for a decade but um yeah, and then a lot of those states also have expanded their yeah uh their lists of what's banned, some of them really extensively. Some of them were like assault pistols and then they went to assault weapons after yep. Sandy Hook. I think that happened in Connecticut and Maryland, but uh but they had some form of a ban before that, whereas Illinois and Delaware didn't have anything until now. Uh, Illinois had local ones. That's uh, the right. Chicago area had had a Sullivan's ban. But uh, the Midland Park shooting, obviously, the catalyst for this passage. But the timing is very interesting on this. And you wrote about this in a in member's piece because, you know, it's coming as support for Assault so weapons bans has actually decreased. We've, we've seen a downturn in that even after Uvalde, which was uh, obviously a very significant mass shooting at uh, elementary school in Texas uh, where AR-15s were used. Um, but you saw, you sort of seen Americans' opinion of these bans deteriorating at this moment, uh, while you're also seeing an increase, right, in ownership of these exact guns that are being targeted, right? Uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the industry's trade group, they estimate there's over 24.5 million of these sorts of guns in circulation, right? Um, and you also have the Supreme Court signaling pretty heavily that they're going to strike down assault weapons bands in the near future. Um, and so that's the backdrop for all this happening, right?
3: Yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, As you said, it's the first real push that we've seen, at least the first successful push. Obviously, this is a perennial goal for gun control activists is to get assault weapons banned. But this is the first time you've seen a, a real successful push, as you said, Delaware last year, Illinois now this year, Washington State and Colorado are two states that I know of at least that have started working on drafts of their own assault weapons bans bills. And both of, both of their legislative sessions have now started. So they are actually in session. So it could be any moment now. Um, this is the first real sustained push um, that's coming, as you said, at the same time that uh, even after mass shootings, Americans don't really seem to be going back to assault weapons bans, um, and they continue to buy them in, in huge quantities. Uh, so it's kind of a weird dynamic that you're starting to see here where gun control activists are getting wins that they've sought for decades plus, um, but it's probably going to be short-lived at least, depending on how these court battles go.
0: Yeah. And obviously, we should note that in places like Illinois and Colorado and Washington, these are probably more popular policies than at the national level. So that's why it's more realistic, but they could still get them through at this point. But it is, of course, very interesting that they haven't gotten through in the last 30 years since these policies have been at the top of the, the list for most gun control groups. Uh, since that time, I mean, you've kind of been arguing about the same gun policies for the last right. 30 years. It's always Sullivan's bans, universal background checks. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting that there have been this long period of stagnation for assault weapons bans, And now you're seeing a resurgence at a time where it, logically it would seem to make less sense uh, for that to actually happen. Um, And, you know, you talk about this, some of the reasons this might be, uh, you know, happening. There's sort of a, a dynamic that occurs when uh, a policy is sort of in the twilight of its existence, I guess, <clears throat> um, where it's actually it becomes easier to pass because you're uh, less likely to have to deal with the consequences of it is sort of the idea here. Right. So you yeah. saw this perhaps around. Um, gay marriage would be an example of this right towards the end of, uh, right towards when the Supreme court declared gay marriage constitutional, you actually had a lot of activity of people. Uh, and when it was becoming more and more popular, you had a lot of, you had a lot of states pass bans on gay marriage, um, uh, even in California, uh, through a ballot initiative. And so that all happened right up until, um, it didn't happen anymore. Right so uh, you also see this with gun policy a lot too And you talked about this in your piece right uh, philadelphia is an example
3: yeah that, that's right it's a pretty common tactic especially in like philadelphia places like that where there's a blue city in a red state or a purple state where stuff like this would otherwise not happen at the state level you'll see blue policymakers routinely pass gun measures that they know either are Suspect or are almost certainly unconstitutional, either because there's a preemption law or there's a pretty uh, straightforward statute in their state constitution, um, and they'll do it anyway just because the political capital—it's worth it for them to to go to their constituents and say, "I'm fighting for, you know, gun safety laws or whatever for you," and and if it gets struck down, they can you know pass the blame and say, "Oh, this is the work of the radical state legislators," or "This is the work of the." ultra-conservative Supreme Court that won't let me fight for you, my constituents. So there's really no incentive for them to not try to push for these attempts because in places where they govern, it is popular, like you said, in places like Washington and Illinois and, and so on.
0: Yeah, there's probably more of the, it's a stronger effect in a place like Philadelphia because uh, that's a lot more concentrated deep blue than something like Colorado, right? Where right. Where there's still a lot of... Um, uh, people who own guns and don't want to see these sorts of bands, same for Washington or even Illinois. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, that dynamic still exists, I think, and drives some of this at least. Uh, and it's it's pretty fascinating to watch. Now, um, I think one other thing to mention too, uh, this also applies as well to magazine bans, I think. There is a magazine ban included with this assault ban in Illinois. It bans. Uh, it sets the cap at 15 rounds. Now, they had initially made the proposal, uh, confiscation where you weren't, you wouldn't be allowed to own, um, you know, any magazine that holds more than 15 rounds or own what they're calling assault weapons. But the, that was stripped out as the legislative process went along, right. And the, the Senate sort of moderated some of these proposals and now you can keep, uh, magazines that hold more than 15 rounds and, um, you can keep this, so-called assault weapons if you register them with the police. Uh, so it's not to the level of some of the other pro- proposals that we've seen in California or New Jersey with with their magazine bans and their uh, expansions of their assault weapons bans. But, uh, but it's certainly extremely significant for people living in Illinois now. Uh, we actually have, uh, we're, g- we're going to have a, a member who's from Illinois on the show in a moment here. Uh, and he I, we talked with him a little bit about this but uh but yeah the the definition also that they're using for sopin is a little bit different than i think people are used to uh it's not an uncommon one it's very it's i think it's similar or identical to the one that was passed by the house last year uh but it is different from what people have traditionally understood uh not it's the same structure right semi automatic rifle or fire or pistol that holds that's that that can accept a detachable magazine and then has, you know, certain features. In ninety the ninety-four ban at the the national level, that let you have two features or up to two features before it was banned. This Illinois law only allows you to have one. And so that's things like flash suppressors, uh telescoping st- stocks or folding stocks, um, four grips uh you know the there's um pistol grips you know so it really it, while it's a minor technical change it actually has a very broad practical impact because it's going to suck up a lot more guns that will fit this this definition now because they really makes it much broader when you go from oh you can have one of these features to you can have none of these features oh, basically right. um and so uh, that's that's an important thing to remember about the progression of these laws. Uh, it, this is sort of the simplistic version of it that you've seen much more complicated expansions in California and Massachusetts. Uh, but there's also another wrinkle in this. Right. There's something with the police can add whatever gun they want to this registry. or Can you explain that a little bit? I was going to say, not only did the
3: definition get a little more inclusive, um, they're actually giving the Illinois State Police open-ended discretion to add firearms to the banned list as needed is the phrasing in the bill. So uh, by my understanding, that means that if the Illinois State Police identify a weapon make and model that... They think is an assault weapon all of a sudden it can be a banned assault weapon uh, that's hmm. that's that's a new wrinkle I, I haven't seen that one before in some of these other
0: bills yeah that's interesting um maybe something along the lines of what they tried to do in massachusetts with the copycat uh declaration where they they said anything that is like what's in our assault weapons ban is an assault weapon and uh, they're still fighting over that in court i believe but um, I guess that's uh, perhaps a, a new wrinkle on that sort of attempt to Because the problem, of course, with a lot of these flaws that uh, you always run into is, well, they're they're cosmetic features that that are getting banned for, well, you know, in large part, things like barrel shrouds and flash suppressors that don't really have any impact on how the gun functions. And so you're left with a lot of firearms that are effectively identical to the ones that are banned, but they're legal and, um, <clears throat> you know, or if you, you know, a lot of the law will start with, it needs to have a detachable magazine to be part of the ban. And so if you don't have a detachable magazine, this was another common workaround that you saw that they've tried to legislate away a hundred different times, but the, it just gets to the core problem of how these, these bans are constructed which is basically politicians don't like the way that some of these guns look they they look like military weapons and so even though they're in a practical sense not really any different from um you know uh, a gun that looks like your uncle's hunting rifle which in our politics is not a scary gun and so therefore is not targeted in these bands even if they're effectively the same basic gun. Uh, and so you, you run into a lot of these issues where they pass these bans, then they notice that some something that still uh, seems bad to them or they don't like the politicians who pass these, these bans is still legal so that they have to find some way to work around that and make it illegal. And that's basically been the ongoing fight in places like California and Massachusetts for 30 years now. Um, and so I guess this is maybe Illinois' attempt at solving that riddle of, well, just any gun that comes up that isn't affected that we don't like, we'll just have the police add it to the list. Right. Uh, we'll have to watch how that develops because I don't know how that could, how that's going to work in practice, but we'll we'll see. Um, but yeah, speaking of which, we're going to head over to our members segment now and talk to our, our Reload member from Illinois. So uh, that'll be a good segment. And we'll get over to it right now. All right. It's time for one of my favorite segments, uh, our members segment, where we have a Reload member on the show to tell us a little bit about themselves. And this week we have David Rice from, from Illinois. Welcome to the show, David. How are you doing?
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Steve. Huge fan.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. We haven't done one of these in a little while. So I always, I always like to get some more of our community onto the to the show and find a little bit more about you guys. So, uh, yeah, just to start with, you You live in the Chicago area, right? That's correct. Uh, you're a gun owner? Probably. I am. I am. What, what was it that got you into firearms when so, you first started? Growing up,
1: I would go shooting at the range with my dad, but never owned anything in, you know, from my 20s, early 30s. And then I'm part of the wave of March 2020 that you talk about so much in your blog. Um, that was actually yeah. when I got my first firearm
0: interesting so uh what what was it that uh, motivated you at that point is the this pandemic starting was this uh, when the lockdown started to happen what what was the what was the thought process there
1: yeah i mean that was that was a big motivation um that was probably the biggest motivation and then i had wanted to get one for a while and i think that just kind of pushed me to okay i'm gonna do this
0: right it was that it was that extra motivation to push you over the edge to actually go out and make the purchase sort of like a Added safety idea going on there. Obviously, a lot of casts happening in March 2020, for sure.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and what was cool about it is pretty soon after getting my first, I realized just how much fun it was. So that one turned into many and classes mm. and training and just it was it it matched up with a lot of my personality in regards to. Uh, discipline, training, safety, um, mm. attention to detail. So, I, I just loved it from the get-go.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually that's very similar to how I got into gun ownership as well. It's sort of, uh, if you're into, um, you know, like you said, discipline, training, uh, attention to detail is a good point there. Especially if you're into mechanical devices. Obviously, firearms are mechanical devices you know people who tend to like to work on their own cars or something like that tends to be a lot of crossover between that and gun ownership or even uh, in my case uh, i do like to work on my car but but also i like to build computers sort (laughs) of another thing that people might not expect to be similar in nature to uh, messing with with firearms or firearms as a hobby but it really is especially if you like to build something like an ar-15 uh, building an AR-15 is actually very similar conceptually to building a, a PC because, you know, you're generally building from parts. Uh, you're trying to put together, you know, an ideal collection of of pieces and then turn them into a functioning device. Uh, you know, it's it's computer. You know, there's obviously a software element to it as well, but, uh, but there's a very similar mechanical building aspect to it. Uh, is that... So is that you know you like to clean your guns? You like to um, upgrade them, put different modifications on them?
1: Yeah, I mean when I first started um, owning and earlier on, just the act of cleaning it. I um, mean this is something I would recommend to new owners: breaking down, putting back together, and cleaning your um, your firearm is really an awesome way to get more comfortable handling your firearm mm. and and. You know i'll put on some music and and clean it and i it's kind of therapeutic if anything
0: yeah yeah no absolutely i mean it makes a lot of sense right you get to really experience how the parts actually interact with one another i think this is something that makes uh ian McCollum's channel forgotten weapons so popular uh, yeah I don't know if, like you've so ever, if you've ever ever watched i them, have but, uh, we've had him on the show before hopefully I have him on again soon um uh, but yeah a lot of his I think the appeal of his channel is not just the history aspect, although that is very interesting, but also he he interacts with the firearms, he takes them apart, shows you how they actually work, how they go together, the different uh, facets of each firearm, because there's a lot of different ways that, uh, to put together a working firearm. You know, there's a lot of different mechanisms that go into it. So I think that appeals to quite a lot of people uh, beyond all of the, you know, typical reasons you might buy a gun, like obviously you experienced with the safety aspect uh, in, you know, March, 2020, or sort of uh, maybe feeling like the reality of uh, I really have to protect myself and my family is, is, you know, the, the options there are, are, um, I'm just trying to think of the right way to put this, but like, you know, the realization during chaos, March, 2020, there were a lot of police were getting sick. There were prisoners. There's all, there's all kinds of stuff. This was even before, Obviously, the rioting that came later on. Which was a big uh, deal also, here in
1: Chicago. I mean, right. I have uh, cousins that live uh, downtown. Um, and j- it just so happened that their parents were in town d- um, during the summer when everything kind of started going down. And one of my cousins, mm-hmm. the CVS in her lobby of her building, burnt down. firebomb. Mm-hmm. So I just had them. I was like, okay, everybody just come up to where I am and until this blows over. So yes, that yeah. That kind of also supercharged my uh interest in in training and everything like that.
0: Yeah, because you want to have the option to defend yourself if you need to, right? Uh not that you necessarily in, in an everyday life in an, outside of the beginning of a pandemic or during rioting you're going to feel the need to you, that 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 sort of uh realization is not going to be at top of mind in everyday life for, for most people. I think in these moments where there's a lot of scarcity or there's a lot of chaos going on, that, that idea really comes to the forefront and, and motivates a lot of people. That's why you saw so much uh, gun buying at that point and so many new owners. But, um, but beyond that aspect of gun ownership, which is, uh, I think the, that's the aspect that people will say most often in polling why they purchase a firearm uh which is for personal safety uh but you can there's a lot more to firearms ownership than just providing you know a, a level of security for yourself or your family and there's there's all these other aspects that you're talking It's
1: about. just fun. Uh, I mean um as, yeah, as we mentioned That's another big running. thing. Yeah. I was at a I was at a class uh yesterday with um Devod. it's a uh it's a Divide Defense it's a group here in Chicago and there were six of us there and we just had a lot of fun. Yeah, talked about the, the new law, and it's it's really there's a particularly in Chicago there is a firearm community that kind of it it just again it's, it's just a lot of fun and you meet a lot of new people a lot of different types of people that I would in my everyday professional life.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a very diverse uh, hobby on top of. Uh, on top of everything else as well, you know, you're going to meet a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life and increasingly uh, people who don't necessarily look like you or share the same background as well. You, know, you saw a lot of uh, minorities buying guns in during the pandemic. You saw a lot of uh, women buying guns. This sort of trend has been going on for the last decade or more, but it really accelerated in the last two, two to three years here. Uh, so, yeah, you're certainly going to meet a lot of interesting people. Uh, if you're if you're going and doing different gun training courses or going to the range and having some fun. Um, and that's a big part of it as well. And then on top of all that stuff, you also have this sort of uh, political philosophy that drives gun ownership as well. You know, this idea of an uh, armed citizenry being harder to oppress, that it's a bulwark against tyranny. Uh, and you. that's also something that you've uh, gotten involved with at least the the political activism side of of gun ownership as well, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm a member here in Illinois of the Illinois State Rifle Association, and back in 2020, um, I was actually a plaintiff uh, in one of their cases challenging the consi- concealed carry licensing delays. So mm-hmm. um, according to state law uh, here in Illinois, you have to be able to get a just normal FOID license within a month and a concealed carry license within. Three months with th- fingerprints, four months without fingerprints. It was taking Illinois State Police over a year for just the regular licenses and 14, 15 months for the CCLs. So I applied, I waited, didn't get it, decided to join on as a plaintiff. And lo and behold, within about two weeks of filing the case, my license came in the mail.
0: Mm. Weird how that Interesting. works. Yes. Yeah, that was a common issue uh during the pandemic i think maybe a lot of people have forgotten about at this point but there were huge backlogs for not just concealed carry permits especially in majors in and around major cities uh, but also just for uh, gun licensing and gun purchase permits which some states have like illinois uh, not most states don't have that but some do and and they, exp- they experience huge backlogs and it was probably a combination of factors i'm sure the increased demand was um, was probably part of it lockdowns had another uh lockdowns and covid safety measures uh delayed things as well but but also you know perhaps some officials were not so interested in giving out permits to to people because they have other uh, reasons for opposing that which basically they just don't they don't want people to have firearms um and so yeah there was a lot of litigation around that and uh, a lot of successful litigation uh, as, as in your case. Um, and so, but it's interesting to see that um, that arc, you know, I've talked about this a lot, like you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, but you know, there were something like 7.5 million new gun owners um, in that, you know, I think it was actually 13.5 million new gun owners first from 2020 through uh, 2022. And, you know, the question is, how much of an impact is this going to have on uh, state and federal gun politics? And, I, you know, my position has always been that in the long term, it's likely to have a significant impact. But people don't usually turn into activists overnight. Now, of course, you're one of the exceptions in, in the idea of like some people do. Right. Some people get very into it very quickly. Um, and and they want to do things to try and um, you know affect the outcome of of their their rights being uh, you know delayed or denied. And you know we I've obviously interviewed a number of people. John Keyes from Guns Out TV is, is sort of an example of that. You also had um, that the Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander Gun Owners Association. Uh, there was actually two Asian American gun owner groups that, that sprung up during the pandemic, uh, from people who were new gun owners at the time, not all of them, of course, but, uh, some of the leading members were brand new gun owners and then they created a gun rights, uh, advocacy group. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting to uh, see that effect in, in, in action and happening quickly with, with someone like yourself. Um, and, Uh, you know, I think that's going to develop for a lot more people down the line, but perhaps not at the same pace. I mean, what do you think? I mean, we're
1: seeing it. So, you know, I'm, I got like a a boring Jewish dad group that I hang out with and we all go shooting together. And, you know, there's nine of us and I think seven of them bought their first firearm in 2020. So Mm. I think this is a powerful, powerful phenomenon. And I think that, what you're seeing is that the people that bought it not only are they diverse, but they're very young. They're they're mm-hmm. not your typical seven year old white haired guy. They're they're in their 20s and their 30s, um, and they're getting more involved. I think with some of the more national groups, um, firearm policy coalition being a great example. So I think that you're you're going to see a pickup um, in the next in the coming years from these new owners.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's always been, you know, someone becoming a gun owner. There was some expectation, I think, in 2020 that, you know, uh, somebody who didn't vote or voted party line Democrat most of their life and then they bought a gun was just immediately going to become a party line Republican. (laughs) And I know that's not really how this (laughs) stuff works, right? No. Uh, They might have changed their mind a bit on gun policy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they've changed their mind on everything else. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the only factor in their vote in 2020, the 2020 elections or even the 2022 elections is probably something that for most people takes a little bit more time to, uh, you know, change the way you uh, interact with politics. And it doesn't even necessarily mean you're ever going to become a Republican voter. Perhaps it means that you'll be more likely to vote for Democrats that are less um Forceful in their advocacy for gun restrictions, or you know something along those lines. It's, I think it's going to have an effect that's less, you know, cut and dry, easy to, to notice, and more uh, slow, long term uh, effect. You know, in some cases, you're going to have people who turn into to activists overnight, and they're they're going to make big impact, uh, and that's going to be significant as well. But but for most people, I think it'll be a longer term change, and it'll be a little more subtle. To notice over time, yeah, I agree. Uh, but you guys actually are dealing with um, a significant gun policy change <laughs> right now. Uh, the Illinois legislature has passed an assault weapons ban, yes, uh, and went into effect last night as uh, as of this recording, yes. And so, what what uh, what are you seeing with that? What are you? but uh, what are your feelings on on where that's headed so it's
1: been a crazy last week for um, for Illinois on politics so what was really scary is when the the first bill was actually introduced and voted and passed on the house floor not only was it an assault weapon ban but it was a ban on magazines over 12 rounds and mere, and as well as possession of those so they were telling Night
0: confiscation
1: yeah, one and a half to two and a half million gun owners across the state that own these magazines that, as we know, come standard with handguns. Hey, you need to turn those in or you could potentially become a felon for having more than two in 90 days. Right. So I was sitting there looking up, you know, lock boxes in Wisconsin, like, what am I going to do with these things? Um, thankfully, you know, with some discussions with some senators, um, you know, particularly the liberal ones who are going to vote for it anyways – um, they were – the Senate bill was, was able to be changed such that the magazines got grandfathered and the handgun limit got moved to 15 for future purchases. Right. But it passed. Now, did they,
0: is there a registration requirement? Yes, for there the, is. For both the guns and the magazines? Is that
1: – No registration for the magazines. OK. But we have until I believe January 1st to register any quote-unquote assault weapon with ISP hmm. or face felony charges. Right, so it's so still
0: very significant.
1: Yes, absolutely, very significant,
0: and very likely to be challenged here in the extremely near future uh, as well. I think. Yes, uh, but yeah, no, um, and and hopefully you'll keep uh keep me up to date on uh, what's happening on the ground there because you you've been providing some uh tips to me. You have, you've you've sent uh, you know notices on uh, here's when a vote's going to happen. Uh, that's always helpful to. Reporters, uh, you know, just whenever readers can send in, you know, here's something interesting that's happening just to make sure it's on my radar. It usually is, but sometimes, you know, it's not in, your, in the state seeing what's happening directly. So that's always okay. an advantage. But um, speaking of which, how did you come to find out about The Reload?
1: So I think I was listening to, I think it was Megan Kelly podcast where you were having a friendly debate with somebody from The Trace. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, these two people with different ideologies are actually having an extremely respectful, nuanced conversation. I I want to find out more about this. Like who who is this guy? Um, and I think I just looked you up, saw that you had your own website and, and saw a little bit of your background. And that's how it started. And and as somebody who really enjoys just the cold, hard facts, I think you've just been a excellent, the best resource in regards to, you know, true to your motto, um, serious, sober gun news. Where, you know, if if I showed one of your stories to one of my friends, I feel like they wouldn't even necessarily be able to tell that whether you're pro two A or anti two A, just because you give the facts and the analysis in a neutral way. So, you know, huge props to you. You know, I appreciate it. A lot of the people I talk to really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, and that is exactly what we try to go for. Um, and, and that's why I like to have on uh, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. In our last episode, we had Mark uh, Smith from, um, or Mark Bryant, my my apologies, from Gun Violence Archive, and we had a respectful discussion about the CDC that. situation that he was involved with. Um, and, you know, that's what we've tried to do a number of times, uh obviously come from the background that i come from gun owner you know, certified instructor i have that try to try to bring that level of uh information that that knowledge that i have to the to the process but yeah we try we do our best to be sober and to to be fair to all sides uh uh whatever you know in every piece that we put out so i'm I'm glad that that is uh is something that that you've taken notice of but um yeah i, I mean uh Hopefully, other people will, will agree with you. I think that really the reload's gone well to this point, and it's been a year and a half or so, almost we're almost two years in April. So, um, it's encouraging whenever I hear that from from readers and members, uh, and and always appreciate the support that you guys give because we literally really couldn't do the site without without it. You know, this this is where we make our money is from memberships. Um, and in fact, if if people are interested in finding out more about the memberships? If somebody else wants to become a member, you know, one of the perks is that you get to do uh, a member segment on the podcast if you want to. And um, you know, you can head over to reload.com and, and check those out today. We got monthly memberships, yearly memberships. We do sales occasionally, not uh it's not not every month, like we're not just a bank or whatever, but we do sales occasionally. Um, and you know, you can also sign up for the free newsletter to get an idea of exactly the kind of reporting that we do, because uh, most of the reporting is is in front of the paywall. It's free. Uh, the analysis is usually what we uh, charge people for to give a little more understanding of what's happening and some predictions down the line for what's going on with guns in America. But uh, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show uh, and giving us some of your time to talk a little bit about your experience as, as a gun owner and as a reload member. Uh, we, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Steve. Absolutely, and we will see you all again real soon.